Nikawa napiga picha ya ID Hawa smile nikubaya after a bit of a break, this podcast is back with part two of my discussion with Shiron Putti, two African students at the University of Stanford. If you haven't yet, I'd recommend listening to part one. Today, we explore Shiron Putti's internal struggles at work as they balance the competing priorities of justice for fellow Africans in their community with their own personal goals and ambitions. We also tackle kind of what more they think expats and the workplaces um, that they work in should do to support them and think about how to design an inclusive space. And then finish with a discussion about the inequities in fundraising and a need for investment funds created by Africans for Africans to break some of the cycles that we see. Before we get started, though, I want to draw your attention to hearing and listening for the burden that Shiro and Putti feel in the workplace. They may laugh and shrug it off, but it weighs heavily upon them, and I think it's it's not something that's unique to them. As a foreigner, I'm free from many of these constraints, and that comes as a great privilege, and it made me realize why I should be more considerate um, and aware of these challenges that my fellow colleagues can face in the same workplace. So with that, let's begin. We dive straight into the conversation, picking up from where we left it last time. So for context, and to situate yourself better, make sure to check out part one. I do want to be mindful of and, and recognize as we have this conversation that we are still in a relative position of privilege. But even as we talk about that, it's this extra layer of carrying the weight of um, this burden of representation. On, on the point of nuanced privilege, because we've come from Stanford, we'll sort of be looked at as these super privileged individuals. Yeah. yeah. In what, in what spaces? When we go back, which I think is really interesting on this point in terms of differentiating between a black African who's privileged versus a non-black African who's not so privileged. Mm-hmm. Because I think in some ways, like that delineation should be there. Mm-hmm. And I think like the reason why it's important is because, you know, in some ways, we're in the position now where we're not like, we're not individuals that have generational wealth. Yeah. And because we don't have generational wealth, it means that either I take some weird knock in order to be able to like be that person who's always angry. That person's like, hey, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong. And my boss hates me. And that's just the, the role that I choose to pick up. Or I choose to shut up and do my job, kill it, and actually be able to make money mm. within some of these organizations. Basically, where I'm going with this point is I feel that like it's kind of a, a weird and unfair position sometimes for us to be in. Yeah. Um, because that's a trade-off that a lot of our white counterparts don't have to make, but if we're still viewed in the same way, right. then they're going to be like, well, John and Putti, you guys both came from Stanford. John never complains. But Putti, you're always telling me about black people in my organization. You're just a pain in the ass. Yeah. It kind of sets up this weird mm-hmm. imbalance and trade-off that I think is sometimes a bit unfair. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there is an advantage that we have compared to a lot of my peers, like I can speak personally, that like have not had, have not been lucky enough to have that privilege. And I think that it's important that we do begin to delineate it because yeah. we, we also don't want a system where because of this pressure to secure generational wealth, you end up with a few 5% elite yeah. that are basically like, I want to create wealth for my family, my yeah. kids, kids, and my kids. Yeah. So I'm going to focus on doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of where the opportunity sits. So as an undergraduate, I was an organizer with Movement for Black Lives groups. And I think it was really essential to think about how 
privilege looks different in like different rooms in different contexts so here you know there are ways in which i don't have passport privilege because like i'm not the type of immigrant that can just like show up and be like (laughs) yes come work for any company you want to but at the same time i am someone who's come in on a student visa sponsored by an elite institution which means that even when i was in nairobi applying for that visa i got treated differently by my interviewer at the u.s embassy front desk and so that's one axis of it right a different axis is when i was organizing with movement for black lives groups sometimes i would get questions or comments from black comrades who had just not been exposed to africa before and so sometimes you're seeing someone who looks like you but you're not able to connect on a certain Mm. level and then when on the george floyd murder and then the protests following that happened last year there was sort of a global outcry. And I think the conversation that was happening at home was why does police brutality at home not attract the same attention? So there are all these complexities about what it means to inhabit a black body. And it means that your privilege is often qualified and then your privilege needs to be sort of like contextualized in the specific space where you're existing as a black person. And even though we're sort of speaking very specifically about like elite institutions and professional spaces where you sort of are talking about a group with a lot of upward mobility, I think it's important to have that full view of uh, thinking about the struggle against systemic racism because we can't allow ourselves to become atomized in this idea of like, I am trying to accumulate wealth for myself because of this sort of like lack of generational wealth because Mm. it sort of ignores the foundational conditions that mean that we face these struggles and frustrations (laughs) once we're here yeah so let me stop there i feel like i'm getting too humanities (laughs) no 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 i i I, I really agree i can speak to a couple of examples so i have a whole bunch of friends for instance they are the breadwinners in their family Right, right right one of my really good friends her mom currently like is a domestic helper and in her head I can tell you right now that she is not going to be thinking about how do I enable all the other people around me right, you know, right, right, right. to also get these positions. In her age, she's like, I want to provide for my mom to the right. point that she no longer right. has to work. I think that's a very valiant point. Yeah. I, I don't want to get in the way of that. And that's my point is that I feel like, unfortunately, in some ways, if you're not uh, careful to start delineating, yeah. you will still get that 5% maybe growing to 7%. Yeah. But I don't think it grows exponentially because that extra 2% that's joining yeah. are also just like, hey, you know, my mom is also a helper. Right. Right now, I got to focus on providing. Right, right. I don't think it's the best way to, like, like increase that delta. And yeah. the delta being, like, our representation yeah. in elite institutions. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think, like, this is the part of the tax we pay, is we're mm. thinking about all these things. And it's, <laughs> like, it's, it's 3D chess in our minds. Exactly. Yeah. And you are just students. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and it is, like, this extra weight of cognition and of work that we have to do to constantly think how much am I allowed to prioritize myself as an individual versus the community I'm coming from Mm -hmm. and then also even prioritizing myself as an individual which might have very valid reasons for doing how do I hold myself accountable to not reproducing the same systems of harm Mm -hmm. that have made it such a struggle as for the generation before us it feels like what combines the kind of two elements and I appreciate his attention which you guys obviously live here but the many Kenyans um, who are working in development spaces live in their daily lives yeah. where they question, should I challenge yeah. my colleague, my boss, who's made this comment? Or yeah. even my junior, to be honest, right. who yeah. might be an expat because of this position. Because right. ultimately, 
I got to keep my job. Right. You know, I've got right, my family, right, etc. Right. And I think that means there's a different risk profile, different positionality mm. that you have yeah. to consider. And so it's heavy. I can only, I can only feel it. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's sort of like creating that space for us to have these honest conversations so that we can each make a personal risk calculation that might change over the course of our lives and that's okay. But when I was in development as a young person in my 20s with not a huge financial safety net, but I knew that I wasn't at risk of being homeless or like at risk of having someone not be able to go to school or be fed because I lost my job. I did feel a personal responsibility to speak out more and challenge more. That might change if I become a parent. That might change as my parents age in the moment. How do we create spaces to have these types of conversations? And our friendship has been one of those spaces for me, which I really value. I think forums like this are a good space for that where you sort of like continuously ask yourself, what does it mean that I am in a particular space? What personal impact can I have by using my voice and speaking mm. truth to power when I can? Now, will power listen? <laughs> Sometimes you got to make it. <laughs> That's the organizer in me. But... One element that I also think about, to your point around like this conscious privilege and this conscious like risk profile is like, are there ways that organizations themselves should also be thinking about this? You know, when I think about like some of the levers that you have to pull on, for instance, it is things like, how do you create these spaces within your organizations where people feel valued and they actually listen and you execute. Mm -hmm. I think like all three of those need to like sort of tie in together. Yeah. Um, but I'll be honest with you, like it's also hard. So we had this diversity equity lady come speak to us. And I asked her the question, quite frankly, you're a black woman. You're often needing like these diversity, these DEI sort of initiatives within the US. How do you avoid sounding like an angry black woman? You know, which like people will just say, all right, cool. That's another one. Sorry. Yes, yes, yes. And everybody moves on with their day. And she was like, and I'm going to kind of shoot myself in the foot here because of the point I made earlier, but <laughs> <laughs> she was like, you've got to make it valuable for them. Like yeah. when I sent to my conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion, I never sent it around. Like, here's all the things you're doing wrong. Yeah. And here's what, how you need to improve. I sent it around. Here's how diversity helps you become a better team. Yeah. You need to develop this product. It mm. helps to have these specific perspectives in your team. Mm. And if you want that, you're not going to get it from five Johnny's all in the room. Yeah. It's going to come from a very different like, audience. Yeah. Yeah. I guess where, where I'm kind of going with this point, right? This is an open question. What are the levers mm -hmm. that we have mm -hmm. that allow us to be able to begin to make organizations think about these risk factors, think yeah. about diversity in a way that's no longer just a tick box exercise, yeah. but truly beneficial? I think it's a really good question and I think you raise a really valuable point in terms of her perspective on delivering value because I think the place where I've been most ex effective pushing a conversation around diversity was, fortunately it comes back to this point of proving yourself, but once I had delivered a certain amount of business value for an organization and I was seen as like a top performer, mm. um, I built trust with my manager. And so I found that that opened up a lot of space to have more candid conversations. So by the time I was leaving that organization, I felt like there was little I couldn't say, honestly. And so once I was in that position, I tried to do my part to leverage that, to like convey as much feedback as I could, to like reflect as many different voices as I could. So it wasn't just like Shiro speaks for the Kenyans. But I also know that that was a pretty unique experience that I had. And my manager became sort of an internal champion for me. And this was a white ma American man. Mm -hmm. But I felt like really was like 
creating spaces, like going ahead, forging a path for me to speak and sort of saying like, Shiro needs to be in this room. I want Shiro to drive this project. Mm-hmm. Someone comes to him for an opinion and is like, actually go talk to Shiro. Mm-hmm. And that happened because I was able to deliver value on a number of projects that might not have been explicitly about diversity and inclusion. It, it, it's not great that you first have to prove yourself, but just thinking about like, how do you actually create space to have that conversation? You create space for folks to thrive. And if they can do their jobs well, then that creates a lot of room. Mm. And they'll do their jobs well because these are competent. Like we have lots of talent. There are lots of competent people. And it's like, if you just give Kenyans or Africans the same starting generosity and say, I assume that this person I hired will be good at their job. I will give them a meaty project where they get to prove themselves. Because that's another mm. thing that happens often, I think, in these development organizations is you start with so much skepticism against you that you get work that sets you up for failure. <laughs> so like, give people a chance to do their job well. You'll create that trust because people like colleagues that deliver for them in all sorts of work contexts. Mm-hmm. And once you've created that pathway where people feel like their value is seen, that they have spaces to add value, people feel the trust to speak up more. I knew that my manager valued me. I knew that he wouldn't let me go because I had an unpopular opinion. Mm-hmm. And so I felt psychologically safe enough to express that. And how could that be replicated for every Kenyan at the organization? Mm-hmm. But it's almost like what you need is you need a champion, right? But it's interesting as well because I feel like <laughs> I've been in spaces where sometimes people try to be champions, but yeah. without realizing it, they create like this weird delineation like, yeah. where they're like, like, all right, let the black person in the room speak. And you're like, right. No. <laughs> yes. Well, <this> so <laughs> I don't mean that you need a white hero yeah, to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's about how how do you create a, a work environment where everyone has a fair shot of doing well right from the bat so that mm. they feel secure in their job and they mm. feel valued by the organization. And I think on the one hand, these diversity initiatives, one, they prove to be very light, but they can sound as if you have to convince the leaders of the organization that diversity of thought is important. Mm-hmm. And what I find really compelling from what you both share is just listen to this conversation and listen to the burden both of you carry. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so evident, right? The weight, the burden, the fatigue mm-hmm. that you will be carrying in these workplaces that the likes of myself won't. Mm-hmm. And that has just huge consequences on your mm-hmm. energy, on your engagement with the mission or the idea or what you're trying to do so let alone notions of different perspectives and thoughts you're carrying weight and fatigue just because of not addressing this and it's the inclusivity part as opposed to just the diversity yeah Yeah. and i honestly maybe i've become too cynical with asia (laughs) and it's something i've been reflecting a lot on i think you i struggle now and lorraine made this point in your first episode there are some people who this conversation is not for. And there are people who I will never convince. I wish that there was a filter mechanism to make sure they were never in leadership at <laughs> organize, yeah. diverse organizations. But sadly, there isn't. But there are some people who will never be convinced. And I think if I have to convince you first that there's value in diversity of thought, we're never going to get anywhere. So if that's the case, I would say run for the hills. If you are a Kenyan or an African who finds yourself in a space where you're convincing someone that diversity of thought matters, save your energy and go talk to someone else. <laughs> I agree. Like, but I also feel that sometimes if we do that, how many companies are left? 
I want to believe yeah. it's a lot. I don't think it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you're the cynical eight organizations. Eight organizations in Africa. Yeah. Like I think at least pay lip service to the idea that. Uh, like intellectually understand because like now it's sort of like trendy to accept diversity of thought as like a metric right i think then people use flimsy excuses and maybe like functionally that means <laughs> yeah but that's my point right like yeah, even yeah. if you like even if you look at that trend yeah right that came from having to actually change that narrative i guess so right? yeah you're right and so it meant <laughs> that like those same organizations 10 years ago were like eh, we don't need to do this like, that's why I'm like, yeah, you probably could just be like, we'll run for the hills. But I personally feel like what ends up happening is they're like, oh, there's no talent here. Would you look at that? Let's go ship in more from wherever we could get it from. Um, yeah, that's true. And so I guess this comes back to a question that I spend a lot of time reflecting on and we spend a lot of time talking about now. Is the solution to just like turn away from this and, and like obviously that's not going to happen overnight but increasingly you're seeing this in the startup space where folks who have made it big as founders on the continent are becoming angels or they're setting up funds mm. and people are trying to move away from like they're saying okay i'm tired of having this conversation let's just do something different. because <laughs> i really struggle to be like i want to do social impact work what is the organization i want to do that at? and it's really hard to think about places that tick those boxes of pay you enough to like meet your family sort of like black tax (laughs) requirements Mm -hmm. and be secure and also match your political values and Mm -hmm. there are people who do it don't get me wrong and i've worked with some of those people and i've seen that work happen in very transformative and powerful ways in kenya but I don't think there's a vibrant space that sort of inspires confidence that there are options and there are ways to escape this narrative. So is it is the solution like more of us just starting our own thing mm. and trying to create parallel tracks? That doesn't feel like a hopeful solution in some ways. But again, the Toni Morrison quote, all of this seems like a distraction. <laughs> I've spent four yeah. years of my life talking about internal diversity and inclusion instead of the external impact on people living below the... Um, poverty line of the programs we're trying to deliver and I don't want to do that anymore what I'm passionate about is justice and poverty alleviation I don't want to keep talking to white people about why I have value I hear you I hear you that's interesting unfortunately in some ways like is there a way that you create your own game right like even if we talk about that example if you're if like if you wake up tomorrow and you're like I am going to form a social enterprise that Mm. does xyz and abc but some white French dude does the same thing, you know, there's a good chance he's probably going to get some of that. He'll probably be able to get, like, raise a good five million, whereas you're going to fight and scrape for every tooth and nail to get, like, a million raised. And where I'm going with that is, like, how... On paper, it's easy to say we flip the script. (laughs) But I think in practice, I wonder, do we accept the constraints of the game we're playing and just begin to play and change it in in our own ways? You look at a lot of, like, the angel investors that you're talking about, reality is that, like, they had to play the game they were in before yeah. they could create their own game. Yeah. And so yeah. in some ways, it's been something that I've been like really th- like reflecting on, which is like, even as you think about like creating these social enterprises and you think about driving the social change, if you're a very wealthy, influential person, yeah. you have a lot of influence to be able to begin to lobby and change the narrative yeah. in ways. But unfortunately, you know, trying to achieve that wealth sometimes means playing a game that's quite ugly. Yeah. Suicide and organizing. <laughs> 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 Gone forever. So please do catch no, us. Uh, like, yeah, yeah. 
touching on that, you guys had written, you know, a few times about VC funding mm. and why you guys are both sat here in a place famous for startups. <laughs> when you think of the Kenyan or African or South African startups yeah. that are led by your peers or others, what is the environment they face? Mm. The thing that shocked me the most by far is access to the ticket sizes for a lot of the stuff that's done. So it is common from a lot of like my friends, a lot of like the rounds they've raised, really like a good round for like a sort of seed company can be somewhere between 60 to 300K. Mm. If you had to do that for like a seed round here, that's just one person hopping in. And most times, especially if you're in the 60K round, they won't even look at you. <laughs> They'll be like, I'm sorry, you're just like, 60K is way too small ticket size. Come to me when you're talking about 500,000, right? At least. At least. <laughs> so it's just crazy to see the amount of wealth like that just floats within these pools. <laughs> and it's actually a real barrier to innovation in some ways. For instance, Shira sent me this really cool list of uh, a whole bunch of in innovative startups that are doing a lot of stuff related to science and hard tech. The grand prize was like $50,000, I think. That is nothing for a hard tech company, right? If you're thinking about the work that's required, and some of it was like in hydrogen production, right? Like your pilot project is a million dollars, like, <laughs> right? So it's like, congratulations. It seems like you've got a really cool idea. We're gonna give you 5% or you know, whatever it is, like 0.2% of what it is that you need in order to be able to make it work. And see if you fail. <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. And then he was surprised when they fail, like, oh, what is, you know, it's just hard to make business in Africa. It's a um, risky market. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I mean, you're not really giving us much to succeed on. So I think that for me has just been like the, the biggest sort of shock factor is just like the amount of wealth that floats here and gravitates towards ideas and how willing they are to try a lot of these crazy stupid ideas even in the seed round that I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs back home don't necessarily have the same sort of freedom to do. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing that I also heard was early bird are basically they're like a growth strategy sort of consulting company. What's interesting to me is they were talking about how they raised the first round for market force mm -hmm. which I think just closed around a 40 million dollar round. Mm -hmm. Market force is a Kenyan startup Basically, what they do is they're within the supply chain for small retail businesses. And now they're like a sort of a fintech platform, but they basically also provide a lot of the supply chain management for these small businesses. And <laughs> the crazy part is, in order to be able to actually start it, they had to get a syndicate of about 50 investors to crowdsource about, I think it was like $250,000 mm. as their seed round. Which is crazy. Now you look at like where they're at, they're at $40 million round. Mm -hmm. And so like clearly there was like huge growth potential and growth prospects. But mm -hmm. even to prove it, you know, they had to go speak to 50 investors. Mm -hmm. And when I asked him, why not just go to VCs? He was like, well, they all just kept saying no. And so eventually we were just like, you know what? We're just gonna, like, we're just gonna have to source it from like all the people that we know mm -hmm. and pull it all together. It's crazy because this is like two local entrepreneurs who had successfully founded two startups before that were both successful and they had exited, right? And they could not raise $250,000. And mind <laughs> you, in a proven sector, because at this point, mm. uh, 
Wasoko formerly Soko Watch yeah. had already sort of like laid the pathway in some ways for a, a model like this. Yeah. Yeah. Just jumping in here, I've been foraying into the VC space as most Stanford <laughs> students do. Um, and part of it is like one of my emerging personal impact pieces is maybe I can make a difference by unlocking capital for folks um, on the continent and folks who look like me. And one of my overarching frustrations with how we think about funding is there's this narrative that VC is very risk tolerant capital and VC bets on innovation. My personal experience with working within the space and sort of hearing an investment committee do their deliberations and then listening to investors network with each other is that doesn't feel very true in Africa. The, mm. To put his point, the ticket sizes are very small. They're not suggesting that you are giving people the chance to actually take risks that they need. And at the early stages, like access to capital will suffocate you or it will like, feed you. And if you just don't have enough money to try and fail a couple of times, mm. you're just not going to grow. And then people will use that as confirmation bias. Mm. And so what we see right now in VC is that there are a few sectors that are very hot and <laughs> fintech is like the prized mm. one. It's because it's proven now and it's de-risked because there are all these rooms where there's no one from the continent making investment decisions evaluating business models and what do they have to go on i generally don't think vc is very risk tolerant you know the fact that people always put pitch that we're the amazon for x we're the uber for y is like shows that there's a certain limited framework in which people are thinking so like my question often is how can you actually unlock more um risk tolerant and innovation focused capital and particularly mm. for black founders and for african founders and then the other question that I have is sort of like on thinking about not just do Western funders want to uh, fund African founders, but also thinking about why might an African founder say, I don't want VC money. So mm-hmm. with Market Force, you know, they couldn't raise it. You know, that's part of the story. And then they found a creative solution. Mm-hmm. How many founders hear those stories and they're like, you know what, I'm not even going to bother. I'm trying to figure out my operational model. This doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to burn nine months of my life unsuccessfully trying to raise money. So what else can I do? How do I circumvent this? So I've spoken to friends who are founders and they're like, well, I actually don't want to raise money in part because a good outcome for me is like if I make what, seven to $12 million from my business, that's good. That sets me up for life, kind of. Mm-hmm. VCs aren't interested in 7 to $12 million of return. Mm-hmm. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is like people saying some version of, I don't want to go out and struggle to raise money to be patronized. Mm-hmm. And so I will, like, you know, and you hear things that then propagate a lack of diversity from a socioeconomic point of view, where I've heard founders say things like, I'd rather take a commercial loan against my family's assets if you don't have family assets yeah. <laughs> then that's not an option yeah. and that's a very risky way to start yeah. a business yeah. but the fact that that seems more attractive than mm. going into these rooms to be patronized or talked down to i think shows that there's a lot of space to think about like what are funding vehicles we can innovate around like thinking about systems change mm. what else can we do to develop Mm. bespoke funding vehicles that meet the needs of the moment and like while syndicating 50 funders for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars sounds like a lot of work 
if someone takes that labor off of you mm. and taps into the fact that there are a lot of young professionals having kids later earning salaries that you know even 10 years ago weren't really conceivable on the continent and mm. wanting things to do with their capital and having this mission alignment of like i want to grow homegrown innovation and talent is there a funding model there mm. and what makes all this much harder is when these same entrepreneurs yeah are then having to compete against the disparity you mentioned yeah, yeah. The entrepreneur here who's going over to start something in yeah. Kenya mm, yeah. can mm. raise the five, the ten million. Right. Yeah. And then they've got to compete with their small ticket right. yeah. against such. Even if they have yeah. better quality, even if they have better market knowledge, yes. you can't fail at the same rate. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that ties in what you just mentioned, Shiro, both what you and Puthi have said today in the notion that you need new, innovative, outside the system thinking yeah. for how to raise funds because yeah. the existing system doesn't work yeah. for us. Yeah. And at the same time, we need the likes of you both to be sitting on those boards or yeah. all those investment mm. committees yeah. to be actually refunding those VC capitals yeah. to the actual deserving members. Yeah. And so in that way, it's that tension, that trade-off, and it's both. It's <laughs> not both. Is there any question I should have asked? You know, I'm trying to be more hopeful. Perhaps we can end with a reflection of what energizes us about mm. why do we keep having this conversation? Why do we've stayed up till 3 a.m. so many nights. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I think personally for me, why I think this conversation matters, why I'm so passionate about it and why I'm so interested in it is because it frustrates me so much. What was the particular trigger for me was looking at how black individuals, wherever they are in the world, how they're so poorly treated often. I think most places that you go, a black individual is very well near the bottom of the food chain. And that's from the second they step out of that plane, which is crazy. To your point, screw the system, right? How do you create our own system? Mm -hmm. I think for me, that's just more and more become something that's sticking with me, mm -hmm. is how do I play my part in actually creating spaces where there's space for like black people to thrive? They don't feel the need to have to go and be subjected to all the discrimination and injustices that they face outside of the world because they're just like, well, this is where opportunity lies. Right. And unfortunately, this is the only way that I can hopefully get enough access to opportunity that my kids don't have to worry about this. Particularly, I would like the continent to be that place of opportunity. And I feel like it's just a natural fit. <laughs> <laughs> and so for me, this is what gets me up in the morning. And even when I hear, when you go through all these crappy experiences and you sort of work with people on the continent that you're like, this is exhausting and I feel super frustrated to like be in these spaces. I'm like, you know, I've got to make sure that at least I know it's my burden to bear and I know I've got my part to play, but if I can create just a few spaces of opportunity, be that executive that mentors five black students, like that even in its small self is a win to me. Mm -hmm. And to your point, I'm like, there's always that unfair trade-off that we have to make. Mm -hmm. If I can create spaces where you don't have to make that trade-off, mm -hmm. that's already step one, because then that means that you now have the space to sort of go, hey, I can actually help out five other people. So it's kind of just like, for me, the more we can create these spaces of opportunity, yeah. I feel like we slowly begin to win, and slowly we begin to get the power to basically say, you know, we don't need to, we don't need to listen to the script anymore. And that's a solid win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very well said. <laughs> Picking up on the idea of like this sort of black diaspora, this is something that I borrowed from organizers I've worked with who are black Americans, which is this concept of I am my ancestor's wildest dreams. And I always find that so powerful. You know, I was named after my dad's mom and 
my dad grew up in extremely different conditions from the life that he and my mom provided for my brother and I. And my grandma and namesake died while they were sort of fundraising for her to go to hospital. And so her granddaughter being at Stanford and not worrying about sort of basic needs is truly like would probably have been beyond her wildest dreams. And I want that not to be the exception. I want people Mm -hmm. not to feel like one, they have to leave home to achieve that, two, Mm -hmm. that they have to like struggle and beat out and fight against other people who look like them to achieve that. And three, that it's this sort of like sliver of hope, one in a million moonshot that only a few of us will make it out quote unquote or and out being just like escape or like achieve freedom from basic wants and so it's very similar to what putty is saying just how do we minimize the impact of the luck of the birth lottery and i think that's sort of what keeps you going it's frustrating but (laughs) (laughs) you gotta stay in the fight because we've been lucky enough to win out in that lottery yeah beautiful that's a wrap for this episode and i hope you took something away from it and if you did why not share it with me i'm really curious to hear if any of this resonates Or if there's one question you'd love to ask Sharon Putti, you can reach me on the podcast Instagram and Twitter. And please share and rate this episode. I don't know if it has any effect, but seemingly all podcasts seem to talk about and request this from their audience. So I'm doing the same as well. Thanks. (laughs) 